that following the proclamation of God's word, we will sing the words of Psalm 124 as they've been set to music for us, and we will sing all three stanzas. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, each worship service, so twice every Sunday, we begin with the same words, namely these words that we have as our text. And so right from the very beginning, we confess that as we come together as God's people, we do so depending fully on the God who made heaven and earth, that he would give us the strength to do so rightly. It's a beautiful confession, but there is a danger. It can happen that because we have these words twice every Sunday, they start to lose their impact. We say them, we have them on the screen, but is it living in our heart? Or has it just become a matter of routine? And there's some other questions we need to consider when we think about these words. We can ask, how fitting is it that we do begin a worship service with those words? What exactly do they mean? How do they focus our thinking? What do they mean for the worship service? But for the rest of life as well? It's good to think about these things a bit more. It's especially true for that last question. After all, typically when you think of these words of our text, you associate them with Sundays. But if you look at the context, then you will see that we need to think about them not just in terms of Sundays, but actually more broadly. Because this confession of trust is something that has relevance for every single day of our life. This is a confession that sets our thinking straight at all times. It's a confession that can confidently be made by each person who has been bought with the blood of Christ. And it's a confession for the church of our Savior as a whole. About this, I proclaim to you the word of God this morning. The theme of the sermon is the church confidently confesses the source of her help. We'll consider two points. First, the basis for this confession. And secondly, the result of this confession. Brothers and sisters, looking at the title, you'll notice that Psalm 124 is one of the songs of ascent. So the people would sing it as they came up to the temple in Jerusalem to worship their covenant God. Songs of ascent, they're a collection within this book of praise given to the church by the Lord. It's a collection that begins with Psalm 120, ends with Psalm 134. Why do we start that way? Is this just some random information? No, it's good to be aware of all this because these songs of ascent are not just random songs that were thrown together in some collection. When you look closer, what you see is that Psalm 124 naturally flows from Psalm 123. In Psalm 123, you have a bit more of a lament. Consider what we read there in verse 2. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. And then there's the prayer of verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. 
Well, from that lament of Psalm 123, we come to the response. It's the expression of confidence found in Psalm 124. But then it's good to be aware the psalm does not begin with that confession of trust. The confession is found at the end, which means this, this confession of trust is the main lesson which is to be taken from this psalm. It's a lesson that's based on everything that comes before it. We'll come back to what we read in verse 1. But in verse 2, David acknowledges there are times when nations and when enemies would rise up against God's people. And there were those times where from the human perspective, things look quite bleak. Verses 3 through 5, he gives a very vivid description of the situation. Inspired by the Spirit, he writes, Then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Good to stop and notice. David uses very descriptive language to paint a picture with words. As we think about those words, we can wonder what exactly is he describing here? There's no specific context given at the beginning of the psalm. Some scholars and commentators have suggested he's referring to an event that we have in 2 Samuel 5, beginning in verse 17. There we read how the Philistines, they come against Israel, they come against David, they're seeking to destroy the people. Whether or not this is the situation David's referring to, it actually doesn't matter. What's important to keep in mind is that when the enemies of God's people would come against them, when they would attack Israel, they had a goal. And that goal was not just a small victory here and there. Their goal was a total victory, the complete annihilation of Israel. That's what David is poetically indicating here in this psalm. He talks about being swallowed up alive. Floods and torrents sweeping over them. And these poetic descriptions that he uses come up more often in Scripture. There's other psalms in which the psalmist would speak about being overwhelmed by water. It comes up very strongly in Psalm 18. In verse 4, the torrents of destruction assailed me. Continues in verse 16, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Psalm 69, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Lamentations 3, verse 54, Jeremiah cries out, water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. Then if you look at verses 6 and 7 from our psalm, you see that David describes the danger in a slightly different way. It says there, the Lord has not given us as prey to their teeth. Verse 7, we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. A fowler, that's someone who hunts birds. And again, it's a common description. Psalm 91 verse 3, the psalmist says, The Lord will save you from the snare of the fowler. But it's interesting to note, this is not only a description that we have in the Bible. In 2 Kings 18 and 19, 
We have the account there of how Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he laid siege against Jerusalem. He was very close to taking the whole city. And then there's one writing we have from that time. And Sennacherib says the following. And I quote here. He says this about King Hezekiah. He himself, I shut up like a caged bird within Jerusalem, his royal city. End quote. Now with these different illustrations, David presents the seriousness of the situation. And if you look at verse 7, he even says the enemies had had some measure of success. They'd been captured, but they had escaped. They'd been set free. In other words, they were safe, but barely. They escaped by the skin of their teeth, so to speak. And how is that possible? It's because their help came from the Lord. And again, that's something you read of time and time again in Scripture, how God is the one who steps in, how God is the one who helps his people. There's so many passages we could reference to prove that point. It comes through in the different songs that are included in the liturgy. You'll find a constant reference to God as the one who helps his people. It actually comes out very powerfully in Psalm 115, though perhaps not as strongly in the rhymed version. In verses 9 through 11 of this psalm, we read the following... O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. There's a constant repetition of the call to trust in the Lord, but also repeated is the confirmation that the Lord is their help and their shield. In other words, God's the one who steps in. God's the one who defends them. God's the one who protects them. Sounds wonderful. But what are we to make of all this? Is David just recounting how God has defended his people in the past? Or is there more that we're dealing with? Well, the answer is we do need to go a bit deeper. Ask yourself this question, brothers and sisters. Why did those enemies want to destroy Israel? Why did they come out on the attack? Is this just one nation against another nation? Fighting over some land, some territory, some resources? That's how it might look on the horizontal plane. But realistically, each time you have the enemy coming out, seeking Israel's destruction, it's all connected with the great antithesis or the great enmity which God declared back in Genesis 3. It's the seed of the serpent coming out, seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. It's Satan stepping in, trying to do whatever he can to disrupt God's plan from moving forward. So ultimately, this is about Satan trying to prevent the birth of Jesus Christ from actually taking place. But there you have the strongest basis 
with a confession of trust that forms our text. There you have the very reason why God defends his people, why God helps his people in their time of need. It's because God will not be thwarted in his plan of salvation going forward. Yes, the Lord intervenes each time. He steps in, he delivers his people, not because they're so good, not because they're always so faithful to him. It's always so that his son would be born at the right time. That he might come into this world as the savior and redeemer God had promised immediately after the fall into sin. And God is able to step in. God is able to help. Because look at his credentials, which David ascribes in the text. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. God's people can depend on him, because he is the creator of all things. The entire created cosmos, everything that we can see, even the things that we can't see, it's all under the almighty power of God. And the fact that these are credentials meant to support God's claim that he can help his people, it's a theme we find throughout the scriptures. In fact, just in this collection of the Songs of Ascent, you find it three times, also in Psalm 121 and Psalm 134. We sang of it in Psalm 115 before the sermon. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. But it's not just an Old Testament theme. It's also something in the New Testament. Acts 4. Peter and John, they'd been released from the council. And there's a large group that comes together for prayer. And they say in verse 24, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So that's their basis for coming to the Lord in this time of struggle. They know that God is the one who created all things. Revelation 14, you have an angel flying overhead to proclaim the gospel to all nations. And this is his message as we read it in verse 7. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So clearly, the fact that this is coming back time and again means this is something God wants his people to know about him. This is something God wants to have his people firmly fixed in their minds. He created heaven and earth. He upholds and governs heaven and earth along with everything in them. And why does he want that fact fixed in our mind? It's because knowing that fact, and even more, it's believing that fact that adds to the basis for this confession of trust in our text. There's more we have to pull out here. Because notice how David words things. He could have simply said, Our help is the Lord who made heaven and earth. But he makes that specific reference to the name of the Lord. It's a reference to his personal covenant name, Yahweh. And perhaps that's not surprising. After all, in, Psalm, in Proverbs 18, we read that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Many of us have heard it before. God's name, his personal name, captures everything about him. 
Exodus 34, the Lord speaks his name to Moses. He proclaims his name along with all his different characteristics. But there's another passage that we need to draw to attention here. Exodus 34, verse 14. You shall worship no other God for the Lord, and here it is, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So the Lord is jealous for the worship of his people. He desires nothing more than that his people would serve him alone with their entire life. But there's another side to God's jealousy. It's the fact that he protects those who are his people. In order for them to carry out their calling, they can't be under the thumb or they can't be under the control of anyone else. And so in his jealousy for his people, in his zeal for them, the Lord will do whatever it takes to ensure that they have the right conditions to worship him and to trust him. And it's good that we see things from that side as well. Because it adds to the basis for this confession of trust. If we're going to trust anyone, in this case, if we're going to trust God, there needs to be a reason, there needs to be a basis for us to do so. Well, that's what's beautifully laid out here in this psalm. David concludes with this confession of dependence on God, doing so on the basis that God has delivered his people time and again in the past. Humanly speaking, things looked horrible. By themselves, Israel was certain to be devoured. But then when God steps in, everything changes. With God as their helper, what looked like certain defeat turns into a glorious escape and even victory. In spite of all the enemy's threats, the Lord moved forward in his plan of salvation bringing his son into this world. And brothers and sisters, right there you have the basis for God's people today to take that confession of trust on their lips as well. It's because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Just as David looked to God's work in the past, so we look to the work of our Savior, that work accomplished with his death and with his resurrection. Because the truth is, without Christ... How did things look? Without Christ, everything was hopeless for us. Without Christ, we were slaves of sin. Under the tyranny of Satan. Without Christ, we were subject to the fear of death, as we read in Hebrews 2. Without the Son of God, we had no reason for hope at all. Thanks be to God, our Savior defeated those enemies. He delivered us from slavery. He set us free from all those fears that could have easily overwhelmed us. And on the basis of his work, we have all our hope. It's through Jesus Christ that the God who created heaven and earth has adopted us to be his children. He takes care of us from the beginning of our life all the way to the end. He shelters us in the shadow of his wings. He assures us time and again of the blessings of salvation that are ours through grace. And he reminds us, his son has won the victory. 
the fullness of that victory is guaranteed, God's plan of salvation cannot be stopped. And when we see that redemptive historical line through the psalm, then we see the riches of taking these words on our lips. We understand why it's possible. They become alive, meaningful. And what it also means is that when we confidently confess these words in faith, there's a result of this confession as well. We come to our second point. In many ways, with the first point of this sermon, we laid out the doctrinal side of things. But now with that being clear, it leaves each one with a question, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to you to take that confession of trust on your lips? How are you left feeling after speaking those words? And that's something that needs to be considered because this is not just a matter of having the right facts. It's also a matter of living out of them. When you think about that confession, the first thing that might come to our mind is that of comfort. With the almighty creator of heaven and earth on our side helping us, what could go wrong? And yes, comfort is a large part of this confession. We'll come back to that. But we do need to consider something else. Because in the first place, this confession of trust that we have in our text is something that challenges us. It's the normal thinking of people. They can go forward in their own strength. We can work our way through any problem. It's thinking promoted so often. Put your mind to it. Put your heart into it and you can achieve whatever you want. There's nothing that lies outside your ability or outside your potential. There's also times where trouble or danger arise. We get stuck trying to rely on our own strength and abilities. We go off in the wrong direction. We seek help from any other source first. And so it can easily happen that we treat the Lord, along with His help and His strength, as nothing more than a last resort. When all the other options fail, then we'll seek what we need from God. It's a theme we see already in the Old Testament. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So for King David, let's think about it from his angle. It'd be very easy for him to trust in his military genius. He could rely on his strategies that he carefully developed with his generals. He could focus on the size and the strength of his army. But as soon as he would do so, his defeat would be certain. And that lays before us a question, brothers and sisters. What are your chariots? Or what are your horses in which you trust. And of course, we don't trust in those things literally. But, do we have a tendency to rely on our own strength, our own abilities? Do we depend on our own knowledge, 
our ability to think things through? Do we place our trust in the resources we've built up for ourselves? Do we rely only on people who are close to us? It's a list that can continue from there. Those are just a few examples. But it is something that each person needs to think about for themselves. What are the horses or what are the chariots that I have allowed to take the place of God? It's a serious question. Because when the Lord is replaced by anything or anyone else, things will go off the rails very quickly. When the one who has saved you with the precious blood of his own son, who has adopted you out of grace to be his child, is not the only one that we depend upon, it shows that our heart and our priorities are badly out of order. And when that's the case, we will be left with nothing. But on the other hand, confidently confessing that our help is in the name of the Lord, it truly leaves us filled with comfort. And that's what David's working with here in Psalm 124. He acknowledges what could have happened to Israel, but he says it didn't take place. And there's only one reason for that. It's because the Lord was on their side. That goes back to verse 1. With God on their side, everything did turn out well. Israel was not defeated by the enemy. They continued to dwell in the promised land. And you see how this works out by once again looking at the context. Earlier we noted that Psalm 124 naturally flows from Psalm 123. What we also see is that our text naturally leads into Psalm 125. Because there in verse 1, the psalmist states, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. So trusting in the Lord, that is living out of these words of our confession, leads to stability. And the Apostle Paul actually takes this language from Psalm 124 over in Romans 8. Because he asks there in verse 31, if God is for us, You hear the echoes of Psalm 124, verse 1. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer he works out is that there's none who can be against us because in Christ, he says, we are already more than conquerors. Well, that's something that has meaning for us every moment of our lives. It's true for us as congregation right now. We began this service with those words of our text, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. We have a foretaste of eternity at this very moment. And how can we experience it? It's because the Lord is our helper. It's because God has made this possible for us in Christ his son. Through him and his bloodshed on the cross, all our sins have been washed away. We're dressed in the robes that have been washed in his blood. We share in the victory of our Savior. And so that confession of trust is one, most certainly, that the church of Jesus Christ makes as a whole. Together, entering into the presence of our God who is three times holy, we actually begin by immediately looking back to the death and the resurrection of Christ. We acknowledge that only through him 
can we enjoy such rich fellowship with the one who created heaven and earth? And that collective sense is what we see in the psalm as well. Look again at verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. This confession of trust was meant for God's people as a whole. But there's also an individual side to it. Because the reality is every single day, each of us faces the attack of the sworn enemies. The devil, this world, our own flesh, they're devoted to our complete ruin. And of ourselves, we're weak, so the situation is dire. We're certain to go down to defeat. But it's the Lord who intervenes. It's the Spirit who strengthens us and energizes us so that each day we're equipped to fight the good fight of the faith. But we have to go further. Because apart from those sworn enemies we face, there's also the many consequences of sin we're presented with on a daily basis. Each one can think about it for themselves. There's some who face ongoing sickness, concerns in their health. There's times where the doctors don't always have the solution. Sometimes it's not the solution that we would hope for. Others face brokenness in relationships. There's wounds that exist where it appears they'll never get fully healed. Some have family members who have wandered away from the faith, want nothing to do with the church. Some deal with burdens of a different nature. Others continue to be weighed down with grief and sorrow. Some may be anxious about what we see taking place in the world around us. We may wonder, where are things going? What's going to happen in the church? What kind of world are my children and grandchildren going to be left with? Again, that's just a start. The list continues. We can go for a long time facing the, talking about the different burdens and struggles that we face on a daily basis. But as long as we make that list, the question will always come back to this. What do you do with it? Do you just try to keep a stiff upper lip, plodding along, hoping that just soon the misery is going to be over? Because if that's the case, there can only be growing discouragement. Spirit inspired David to write down these words of our text to give us direction. Because these words of our text should not only be spoken by us at the beginning of a worship service, they should be on our lips at the beginning of every single day of our life, whether we're young or we're old. Because what better way to start the day than by saying, our help, my help, is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. With those words, all of life is put into perspective for us. These words remind us, yes, there's going to be troubles, there's going to be afflictions, there's going to be struggles that we face. But throughout all those things, we have a source of help and strength far greater than any burden that exists. We have a stability that no person can achieve for themselves. We have God as our helper who is at our side continually. 
And since he made heaven and earth, everything in them, continuing to uphold and govern all as well, there's the full assurance that nothing we face lies outside his ability. Yes, there are times where our helper takes the burden away from us so that we no longer have to deal with such things. There's also the times where in his wisdom he allows us to continue dealing with them, but he never makes us do it alone. Instead, he reminds us, my grace is sufficient for you. I lead you. I carry you every step of the way. And with that, we're not only given comfort for each day, but we're also given the assurance of how everything is going to work out. Brothers and sisters, think about it this way. To use some language from Romans 8, if you are already a conqueror through Jesus Christ, if nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ, where do you think things are going to go? The end can only be one thing. And that's the fullness of eternal life sharing perfectly and completely in the blessings of salvation. It's the enjoyment of a life in which there are no longer any sworn enemies. It's the experience of a life in which there's no more sin, nor are there any consequences of sin. And that's the result of confessing each day our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's shown time and again in the past he is the helper of his people. He's shown in the past what he's done to redeem us and to reconcile us to himself. So what's left for us? It's to go forward in faith. To entrust ourselves daily to God's care and protection. And to continually seek his help. And to do so confidently knowing that it is there at all times. And so may there never be a day in which we do not confess with confidence our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And may there never be a day where we do not experience that most beautiful comfort. Amen.